Hey, food friends, and welcome to the Food Founders Podcast. Whether you're looking to get on your very first store shelf or you're looking to grow your national or even international food brand, this podcast is going to teach you what it really takes to launch, grow, and scale a packaged food brand. Hear the food founder journeys of brands growing in their industry so you can fast track your food business success. I'm your host, Ainsley, and this is the Food Founders Podcast. Hey, food friends, and welcome to the Food Founders Podcast. I'm your host, Ainsley, and today I am thrilled to have Joel D. of Edward and Sons on here talking to us today, not only about Edward and Sons, but the journey of what he has gone through to grow this company. And Edwards and Sons is really, you know, one of the original organic companies that helped shape this movement uh, that we see all across America. So Joel, I am so excited to have you on today to share with us. It's kind of fun for me too. Thank you for having me. Can we can we just open it up by you sharing who exactly is Edwards and Sons and what type of products do you guys offer? I would say that we are a importing sales and marketing company that focuses on vegetarian, vegan, and organic shelf-stable packaged groceries. Does that make sense? It's a long mouthful. So we're a food company, a specialty food company, if you will, that prioritizes wholesome, simple ingredients and organic agriculture where possible and where we believe consumers will pay the premium necessary in order for us to be able to bring it to market. We were a family company. Uh, My father, Edward, is who I named the company after when I started the business. I got my business training working in a company Edward founded, which is a company called CD Candy. And that company is still in operation today and run by three of my nieces who are co-presidents of that firm. And in Canada, they produce a product which is called Rockets, a children's sweet. And in the United States, they produce uh, and sell the candy, the same candy, but it is sold under the name of Smarties or the brand name Smarties. And this has to do with international trademarks as to why those are different brands in each country. But I grew up basically uh, one of three sons of Edward. And um, as a kid growing up with a father who had a manufacturing facility, a factory down the road. I would go to the factory routinely after school and during summer break and and play in the warehouse to make a great games climbing over pallets of cardboard and things like that. Uh, my mother would have been shocked, but my dad wasn't too concerned. <laughs> and then in the summers, I would you know, be employed to paint machinery before it went on the line, or I would do put me on the packing line and I would race to keep up with seasoned uh, employees who were packing out candy into boxes at breakneck speed. And it was all I could do just to really just try to keep up. And also over the years, I had the experience of observing my dad and the things that he cared about and valued and the things that he worried about and lost sleep over. A lot of that helped me to understand what a manufacturer is concerned with. And that knowledge was just something I grew up with. And I think it helped me when I began my own business, because in doing so, I chose to have no factories, but to work with factories. We can get into that if you want to, as to the whys associated with that. But basically, I decided that there's plenty of manufacturing capacity in the world. The new factories were not required. 
and that one of the things that I know kept my dad awake was if the machines were not busy all the time. So I knew that factory owners would be very happy if I could find a way to help them to keep their equipment busy during idle times. And that allowed me to create opportunities that otherwise I might not have seen as being available. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, I love that because you were able to learn from your father to see like, what are those headaches that keep you up? And you're right. It is the production a lot of the time. And you're also able to then help get rid of other people's headaches without being like, I can't product market. Exactly. Kind of win all around, which is great. Yeah. Well, that kind of is the way in which we choose to operate. So we're kind of a win-win bunch and we're a golden rule company. I don't know that it's actually, well, you know, the, um, the golden rule is treat someone else the way you want to be treated if you were in their position. And generally by doing so, we leave pretty good results behind us. So, uh, people feel pretty good about working with us and many of our uh, collaborators and supplier partners have worked with us for decades. And also it just makes sense if you're able to uh, create situations and participate in situations where all parties are benefiting from it. Um, who's going to complain about that? Absolutely. I think that is that is how everyone should approach business. Uh, yeah, I don't know about shoulds, but it works for us. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> I'm really curious how you went from spending your summer in a candy company to deciding to go into this world where you do focus on better for you products, on organic products. How how did you end up there? How How did you start this? Well, I'm a kid from New Jersey, so I grew up in a town called Elizabeth, which is really a suburb of New York, but it's in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And in New Jersey, I was a meat and potatoes guy because that's the way I was raised. And when I was in college, I went, I was studying psychology. I had in me this sense that this was a kind of dysfunctional world we were in and psychology was what was going to save us. And so that was the career path that I was choosing through my education. I always knew that business was available to me because I had two brothers and they were involved in the business that my dad had started before I got involved in it. So, but I I wasn't sure that I really wanted to say, okay, well, my life is planned out for me. I know I'm going to be working in the candy business from now until I retire. And this is when I was in my early 20s. So I thought, well, I, I really need to at least explore psychology as a possible career path. And all of the graduate schools in psychology that I was interested in seemed to be on the West Coast. California was always on the cutting edge of things as far as I was concerned. And also I was California dreaming in a way I was, you know, of that generation. So after my, I had my undergraduate degree, I went out to California and based myself in the town called Santa Barbara. Um, when I came out to California, I found that a meat and potatoes guy was somehow not in step with the young women that I wanted to get closer to. And um, so uh, through that process, it was a bit of a struggle, actually, because I used to be the kind of guy that would actually argue with vegetarians about how can you not eat meat? Kind of that sort of where I was at. And here with the ladies I was interested in, and they were quite wonderful, seemed very healthy, very, very attractive and appealing. But I couldn't understand about vegetarianism. And it dawned on me that there was, there are some things in life that you cannot figure out, you must experience. And so I decided that I could, that that vegetarianism was one of those things. And so I decided that I decided I would try to be a vegetarian for four months and see how I liked it. 
What I'm getting at is ultimately I decided not to pursue psychology as a career. And so I did not continue with my graduate school. And around the time that I made that decision, I got a call from Edward. And Edward told me that he had a number of inquiries from overseas for people who wanted to buy candy. He had no one in his organization that was assigned the task of developing those trade leads. And he was inviting me to return to New Jersey, come back to work for the candy business, and form an export division for the company. That was the what brought me back. So that is what I did. And I began traveling in Europe and Asia to set up distributors, imported distributors for the candy that my family was producing. And while I was traveling, don't forget, I'd become vegetarian. So now I was going through Europe and Asia with a need to maintain a vegetarian diet in the 1970s when it was extremely, very countercultural. It was not Uh, mainstream at all. So it was in that world that I said, I need to do something because all I was eating was potatoes and salads and it just wasn't working for me. And one day I went into a health food store in Belgium and I found on the back shelf of this little shop, I mean, it was probably no bigger than a closet, but on the back shelf, there was a box that was in Japanese, but the only word in English that I recognized was miso. So I got one of those and it was a little inside the box with a little packet and inside was a powder. I took it back to my hotel room and uh, put it in a cup and put hot water in from the tap in the bathroom. And just the smell of it was enlivening. And when I drank it, I felt nourished. It was extremely convenient. And I went back to the health food store the next day and bought everything off the shelf, plus a case they had in the back room. And I threw it in my suitcase and I traveled with it and it became my sort of emergency nutrients. When I came back to the U.S., uh, I attempted to replenish my supply and could not find it anywhere. Couldn't find anything like it anywhere. And in fact, the whole notion of convenience natural foods or convenience health foods, as they were known at the time, was an oxymoron. Anyone who was thought to want to eat so-called natural or health foods was thought to be a person who wanted to cook from scratch. The industry seemed to not understand that there were folks out there who maintained lifestyles like everybody else, but wanted to avoid certain ingredients or chemical additives and preservatives. So against that backdrop, though, was what I realized that, hey, if I did not develop this or bring it in from somewhere, it wasn't going to happen. And that's what prompted me to recognize that I had some sort of a strange mission that I wasn't looking for, but it found me. And it took about a year and a half probably to develop my first product, which was a product called Miso Cup, an instant miso soup without all of the unnecessary additives and to bring it to out into the market. And with that, to found Edward and Sons and leave the candy business uh, for the rest of my family to work on. How did you go from that wonderful miso to the full line of products that you have right now. You have like such a massive lineup of products. Is that just been the urge to fill that need of how do I bring these great products to people? Well, remember that I'm a niche dweller and also remember that in starting with one product, two flavors, it's difficult to pay the rent. I didn't really have rent. I moved back into the Airstream when I first introduced Miso Cup, but I had gas bills to pay and um, I needed to have more to sell than just that. In developing, so this is in developing Miso Cup, my work took me to Japan to do that. But I 
kind of had the opportunity to do that because I had just the year before set up a importer in Japan to buy candy. So when I went to Japan to visit our customer, I was able to then also go and visit possible producers of my desired miso soup, instant miso soup. And by the way, there was nothing like it in Japan, just so you're clear about that. In other words, in Japan, when they make instant miso soup, they make it with added MSG and fish flakes and shrimp and you know other kinds of things that I didn't want to have in my product. So it took a little doing to persuade and encourage and to create the kind of product that I wanted there. So I went back and forth to Japan a few times to do that. And in so doing, I became rather enamored of Japanese culture. One of the things I noticed in Japan was that everybody ate rice crackers, pretty much everyone. Not only did they eat them, but they would give them as gifts. And I thought to myself, this is amazing. And yet Americans know nothing about it. So I wonder if we might be able to add rice crackers onto the products that we are developing. The problem, of course, being that the products in Japan that were being consumed as rice crackers were all being made from white rice and all being made from, so that's polished without the bran and really has most of its nutrients other than the starch removed. In addition, they would put in colors and other kinds of things that I was not interested in. But it did take me around then to visit rice cracker factories to say, well, are you willing and able to make a rice cracker for me using whole grain rice? Because I want the nutrients that are in the rice and without the colors and so forth. So when I when I started going around with that, <clears throat> I was a bit disappointed that I would be laughed at by the factory owners or the managers who would speak with me uh, because apparently I didn't realize at the time, but whole grain brown rice, which the Japanese call genmai, um, was considered to be food reserved for the poor or for livestock. So if you were well off enough to be able to afford it, you would then certainly want to buy properly polished, beautiful white rice. The fact that it had all its nutrients removed didn't seem to be the issue for the mainstream in Japan at that time. Things have changed. But at that time, it was difficult to find someone. It was only after going to a number of rice cracker factories that I finally went to one that had been in the family for many generations. And the president of that company, when I presented my question to him, said, oh, I remember my grandfather used to make rice crackers from Genmai. He said, oh, we can try it. So I said, fine, please do. And he tried it and it worked out just fine. <clears throat> and so that became my second product line. But I was afraid to make it look too Japanese. I already had miso cup, which had some sort of hybrid American Japanese flavoring to it, styling to it. But brown rice snaps, I more Americanized. So that's when I called the a name like brown rice snaps, baked brown rice snaps, in fact, to make clear that it wasn't a fried cracker. And its ingredients were extremely simple and wholesome. And it became the second item in the line. And because there were a number of flavors and I could build on that, it became multiple items. And now I had enough so that I could get the business started. I introduced a wonderful product that's not on the market anymore as my third item, an item that was a, a very popular in Japan. It was um, a cracker, a round ball cracker with a peanut center. And the Japanese love it. You get out of every vending machine and so forth. And so I developed it even with a little character. <laughs> it was cute. And I called the item Cracker Balls. And I launched them into the market and we got some traction, but it didn't really work. And one of the reasons it didn't really work was that I did not recognize that the peanut had a tendency to become rancid 
inside the cracker. And it didn't really make it through the full shelf life that I needed in order to accommodate my distribution system that I'd set up. So by doing that anyway, Cracker Balls was a launch. It had a following and then it had its demise and we went on to other things. But that's how it began in Japan. Beyond that, then we worked on other items. Uh, some of them had to do, for example, with people that we knew domestically. We would go, I would go into trade shows or even when I was going around to stores, I would hear from stores other people who would come to visit them. And so relationships began to be developed between entrepreneurs who were food founders in their own rights and different businesses. And one of those ultimately came to me and asked if I would buy the their brand and their products and market it under ours. And that was a, a brand called The Wizards. The fellow who developed it had developed a sauce called the Hots, Hot Stuff. And we were in the process of developing a Worcestershire sauce that we I think ultimately developed together. And the reason being that conventional Worcestershire sauce has anchovies in it. And so vegetarians could not and would not enjoy it. Not just vegetarians, it turns out. I didn't realize that's the later, but also uh, folks on a kosher diet would not mix it with uh, the other meats that they were having. And there's various different rules. Whereas when we were able to create one, which was categorized as kosher and parv, then kosher butchers began carrying the item, et cetera. So by keeping things simple, we wound up appealing to audiences or consumers that we didn't know about. But that was a domestic product and a domestic product line that we launched, which became a beginning of a sauce category for us that we branched out into other areas. And we still have a number of sauces today. By the way, back when we began, there was no definition for organic. That's another thing to keep in mind. So people were calling anything organic if they were trying to get across that it was an organic, and some of them were, and some of them weren't, you know, it's just, there was no, no standard. And the industry, such as it was in recognition that it was going to grow, but in order to grow, we needed to create a standard for that. Began working on that in the late 1980s and on into the 90s. And it was interesting because it was, it's, it's unusual, I think, but a food industry reached out to the U.S. government in order to collaborate on standardization. And so we wanted the government to be the standard bearer and, and enforcer of the standard to give the consumers some confidence that organic actually meant something. Interestingly, it ser that served very well to help the organic businesses grow in the 1990s. But as we moved into the 2000s and it was becoming more and more popular, consumers began to be to suspect, uh, become suspicious of the organic terminology, the organic seal, because it became to be associated with large corporations who were stepping in to take advantage of this area of growth. And uh, so these things kind of come and go. But as we moved into it, when organic began to become standardized, that gave us the opportunity to continue to grow our product line with more and more certified organic products, which is really the direction that we like to go. We don't exclusively do certified organic products, but we always prioritize them. And for us, we feel it is a win when we have been able to provide an organic premium to growers who are growing according to an organic philosophy, a sustainable farming concept, and also consider it a win when we are able to nudge conventional growers over to farming organically in order to be able to achieve a product that we are seeking to do. So those are things which we do that are not directly contributing to the bottom line, but have something to do with our 
mission. I'm not sure I answered your question. The line is very full now, but I can give you an example of one. So, so right now, as of today, the probably dominant area of our business now has to do with organic coconut products. And you might ask how that happens. Well, the way that that happened was, so maybe 15 years ago, Allison and I were in London. We were on our way to an organic trade show in Germany. And when we were, when we go to London, we love to go to, we're, we're a little peculiar because what we love to do more than anything else is to go to food stores, go to grocery stores and health food stores and supermarkets and gourmet shops and just see what's on the shelves. What are people eating? What's, what's happening in this country, in this culture? For us, it's fun. And so when we were there, we noticed on the shelf of, I think it was a supermarket actually, that they had an organic coconut mill, which we had never seen before anywhere. And it got both of our attention. And we thought, this is amazing. Have you ever seen it? Neither have seen it before. Of course, the package was a private label for the supermarket, so it didn't tell us anything about who was producing it. And it became a stimulant for us to begin our international sleuthing process, which again is part of the fun for us. And uh, we were able to ultimately track down the manufacturer who was located in Sri Lanka. And so, so anyway, we met that supplier and began a process to first import the certified organic coconut milk that they had. We had to make sure they were certified for the U.S. because a European certification wasn't the same as a U.S. certification. And we also began the work with their R&D department to make it simpler. So what I mean by that is, so one of our, this is, I sort of skipped over this, one of our precepts or our principles is, it's the old kiss, right? The keep it simple, stupid. Every time that we introduce an ingredient to a product, we know that we are alienating at least one consumer somewhere, and usually more than one. Whatever the ingredient may be, they just don't like it. It's against their religion. It's against their dietary preference, or they may have a food sensitivity. Any of those things can alienate someone. So really, once you do anything other than water, you are beginning to limit your possible consumer base. So we try not to put in unnecessary ingredients. And a lot of what prompted the work on Miso Cup in the first place was, why does everybody put this crap into their products? It's not necessary. Well, the answer is <clears throat> because others have done it before them, number one. Number two, because it extends shelf life so that they can get the longest possible shelf life. Number three, because it reduces cost and you can put less expensive ingredients in something to fill up a package without actually needing that ingredient in there. And then number four may be for some taste profile that they're seeking to get. So we try to eliminate those reasons and then come back to, does the food itself taste good? And if it does, we don't need all the other stuff. So that's kind of, though it seems silly, it seems simple, and but no, simple. I think that makes a lot of sense though. And I like how you've looked at things like that where, yeah, every additional ingredient potentially deters someone else. I'm sure that that has not been an easy process though. So I'd, I'd love to hear like, you know, we know the food business, there are ups and downs with it, especially when you really are a trailblazer in an industry and you are going, you know, going against the standard American diet and trying to evolve it in a way. What's been one of the one of the hardest lessons or the biggest lessons that you've taken away from running this business? So when I started, it was really just me and a part-time secretary. So 
in that regard, I can say that I'm not good at everything. And yet, by necessity, I had to do everything or largely everything. So forgive me, I, I'll be happy to come back and attack this, your question another way, but let me just at least express this because this is what I thought when I was thinking about, well, what did, what was it that was a lesson that I learned uh, early on that I hadn't anticipated, which was that the process of doing everything empowered me to when I got to the phase of being able to delegate. So if I had delegated too soon, I would not have known how to guide or evaluate whoever it was I delegated to. By necessity, I couldn't delegate for a while, so I had to do all of these different things. But in reality, it became, I think, one of our strengths as a company, because as we grew, I was able to impart to whoever I was delegating to what I had learned from my time or tenure fulfilling that role or that duty in the company. I ran into some problems when I delegated too fast, for example, because I didn't like doing something, so I wanted to get out of doing it before I really understood all of the nuances associated with doing it. So the person I brought in, I wasn't able to train properly, and they didn't really do a very good job, and it became a disruption in going through that. So being able to do everything for a small company entrepreneur is not a bad thing to do. And if I were to start a new business, I would probably do something similarly before bringing outside folks in to assist. Yeah, you're um, able to really learn, you're able to learn like what what it takes to really get the business running in certain ways. And, you know, how do you delegate if you don't even know what necessarily needs to be done or how to have it done efficiently in a way, right? It's true. And there's a lot of misinformation about how to do things too. And the only really way to do it is to have some experience with it yourself. And I'm thinking about, you know, logistical things and freight matters and as well as sales and what was demanded of me by the distributors who were willing to place our products if, 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 if. And some of those demands were presented as demands, but were not absolutely the most important thing. I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't been there. Yeah. Salespeople, for example, are very, if, you're, if a salesperson is motivated only by top line sales, they do tend to give away a little bit more than they need to that affects bottom line sales, bottom line revenue. But again, these are just certainly not true for everyone. I'm just saying that from my perspective, it was useful to have the experience of wearing all hats before starting to place hats on other people's heads. If you could go back in time, as you've been growing this business, what would you have done differently, if anything? One of the things that I learned was that things are not always as they appear. And of course, that's true in many aspects of life, right? So to introduce a new product into the market, what I was told and what was demanded of me was that we create and present a finished product and be ready to ship it out the door as soon as a customer says, okay, we'll take it. That was an expensive process, especially for a niche company as we are. We're niche dwellers. So we're always needing to develop new items and bring them to market in order to keep revitalizing ourselves because we don't have such huge volume of any one item that is going to pay all the bills. So we have to continue to create. And in doing that, the creation is an expensive process that involves making commitments and spending money to print packaging material and buy 
byproduct from a farmer and a packer, and then importing that product into the United States, bring it into our warehouse, where we then are able to send samples out to salespeople, and they are making presentations to customers to uh, hopefully buy it. And then if they do, the distributor may list it if we're fortunate, and then they will list it for three or four months down the line, and then the stores have to pick it up, and time is ticking. And these products all have shelf life, again, particularly because we don't throw a bunch of preservatives in in order to extend the shelf life. So the new product process was one which cost us lots of money in the early days. Now, what we learned, and which I which I realized at the time, was that there are ways around that, that we can create prototypes uh, from which we are able to present products that have not necessarily been produced in full production volumes. And that allows us to go to market without the same level of expense as we had early on. We can also introduce items at trade shows that way and get a feel for what people are going to want before we make the huge investments in an item that perhaps no one is actually interested in. And indeed, we've done that when we learned to do it, and we would introduce the same prototype year after year at a trade show until someone said, I've never seen this before. We'd love this. This is right on. So one of the things we have to watch out for in our world is, you know, being a marketing company is like being a surfer. So in that, we we paddle out to position and we're looking for waves to come, which are those trends that come because we prefer not to ride the big fad waves that they tend to crash and wipe you out. So we want the nice long trend waves. And when we see them coming, then we paddle and we paddle like crazy and we have to catch it just right. If you go too slow, you miss the trend and you miss the ride. If you go too fast, you're ahead of the trend and the wave crashes on you. And that's not a very fun ride. But when you catch it just right, the ride is exhilarating and rewarding. And so when we're doing this and we're creating prototypes to show at shows, we don't know exactly yet what the size of the wave is. It's the trade feedback and the consumer feedback that we get to the prototypes that we're showing that help us to measure the size of the wave and the pace of it so that we can hopefully paddle correctly to catch the ride. And we're not perfect at it, just like every surfer doesn't catch every wave, but we get more than our fair share of rides. And so as such, we've been able to hang in there for over 40 years. That's a great analogy for business. I love that. And especially in the food business, when you're looking at these trends, that makes so much sense And that that's, timing is part of it. And when you can continuously reintroduce things and see, and now is the time, right? Now is the time, right? Now is the time, right? It's going to be the right time at one yeah. point, but you're waiting also for the market to help dictate that versus you just going out and trying to make it work, which, you know, it's going to be a lot smoother if you just go with it. And, and I don't know about you, but I've seen plenty of big, big companies miss the wave and Sometimes they think that they're by their size, they can power it. And uh, to some degree, they have some influence on this. And I think of coconut water as an example. I don't know if you've noticed that one, but you know, the big companies really saw that one coming. They really did a good job with that, recognized it coming, got themselves in position, bought up all of the 
you know, all, all of the resources that they could having to do with the coconut water supplies. So companies, big international beverage companies were positioned beautifully to catch the wave that in some ways they helped along by releasing press about how it's coming. It's coming. So telling everybody it's coming helps it to come strangely enough. Yeah, absolutely. But we don't have that, those kind of resources that they do to influence waves like that. So um, we tend to um, do be better at spotting them and see if we can recognize and catch them. What's one of the big growth plans or hurdles that you guys are working on right now? So first of all, understand that um, when you speak of growth plan as something to work on, that is already making certain assumptions uh, that growth is the goal. And healthy growth is one of the goals, um, but it's not the, you know, it's not the summit. So we're not targeting size as what we view as being successful. So if I can comment on that just for a moment. So for me, success is resilience. So our goal is to continue to be resilient. And that involves activity on lots of different levels, especially because diversification is a quality of resilience. Mono anything is, in my view, risky and unwise for a number of reasons, whether it be mono cropping of one variety of corn on thousands of acres. Risky, very economical. But if one bug decides it's going to like that corn, you're in pretty bad shape. And that kind of stuff happens. So diversification for us is part of it. Um, We do like to grow. We're always reinventing ourselves. The analogy I would use there kind of has to do with the human body in a way. You know how people say, and I suspect it's true, that every one of our cells is renewed every seven years, something like that. So it's a good analogy to see that the human body, the way in which it grows and thrives, is not by becoming a giant. It's by continuing to slough off old used up cells and create new ones that are going to be well suited to serve the being and through this stage of its life. So that's kind of how I look at what we're doing. We will try to recognize and slough off the old cells, the things which just either the trends have moved on or the products are no longer what they used to be or don't mean what they could to consumers, where they made people just got tired of them and moving on. First thing we look at is whether we can refresh or revitalize them in some fashion to make them more relevant. But if we can't, then it's time to move along and create something new. That doesn't mean that we as a company are a failure. It just means we're we're growing. Yeah. So plans for that, then in that case, if we can look at that as the goal for a moment. Which I so, like I like a lot more because it's one thing at the very beginning, it's like grow from a from a product line or a you know different um, profitability, but it is an iterative process. Sometimes you yes. get rid of pieces to add something new in or not. There's also something to be said with just doubling down on what works really well. And I think sometimes people overlook that. You know, I've had some very wonderful friends over the years, uh, and some of them have been very successful in what they do. And one of them has said to me that the, you know, and he he's an advisor to companies large and small. And what he points out is that really what you need to do is look over your product line and take a look at the, you know, the old 80-20 rule. Look at the, 
you know, 20% of the business, uh, the, the items that do 80% of the business, or maybe even look at the 10% of the items that do 80% of the business, right? And and just focus on those and let the other ones go and then grow that way. And there is wisdom in that for a lot of companies. Sometimes it's only focusing on the one or two items that amount to 90% of the business. And it definitely is more efficient. But the backside of that is the conversation we just had, which is, but then what happens to diversity? when you do that. And not only that, but in our business, because we are um, providing certain kinds of niche products to the market, the focus on a few means that we are depriving our consumers of products which are of value to them, which may not be top line enormous things for us, but they are important in people's lives. So if we care about our products being important in people's lives, which we kind of do, then it makes sense for us not to abandon them just because they don't meet the 80-20 rule. So we don't want to do things that are going to lose money uh, over time. Maybe we'll, we'll do it for a while in order to achieve a goal. But over time, if we see that some, you know, we're not going to keep beating the uh, dead tofu, it's not <laughs> something that we're going to, you know, at some point you give up on that, right? It's, it's enough is enough. But, but there are things that we do that don't make financial sense and then tend to work out okay. Now, a lot of those tend to be in the R&D side. So, but I'll, if I tell you those stories, then I'll be digressing from your question. <laughs> so back to the the plan for the growth of the business, growth meaning renewal as well as top line growth. Um, I also have to bring up the fact that I'm now 68. Yeah, 68. And I've been doing this since I was 25. So, and I still love it, which is, of course, why I'm still doing it. There's plenty of opportunities. We get letters regularly for folks who are interested in acquiring the company or becoming partners or this or that. But anyway, we, we haven't pursued those um, because I still love what I do. And because I think that I care about what's commonly thought of as legacy. So in order for that to, to be meaningful, I have to recognize those things which I have not yet delegated and come up with a plan to delegate them because I'm not going to be around here forever to kind of ful fulfill the role that I'm in. So part of that has to do with the things which I continue to do um, are many of them are in the area of this finding new suppliers working with and developing new relationships with producers around the world recognizing that diversification is important so when we have one great supplier of a wonderful product it's not that we mean to take anything away from that supplier but it's wise for us to have a secondary supplier in backup position um all of these things at the present time, I do not have anyone else in my company who is currently groomed for that. So part of our game plan or my game plan is to be grooming from within the company, with those within the company, and those that are not yet within the company to work with me and collaborate to understand and find a kind of rapport in these tasks so that others will be able to pick them up in a way that doesn't lose sight of the mission aspects that I feel are important. Not because anybody else really has to. I mean, the society doesn't have to agree that those are important. We, as humans, have the creative ability to imbue meaning in anything that we choose. So I've chosen to make this meaningful. It enhances my life. And fortunately, the feedback that I hear from others is that many of their lives are enhanced by it also. So it seems like a good way forward, and I'd like to see it continue even after I retire or move along. 
So that's kind of what I think the, is the growth phase for us. It's not to change course, but to have more and more capable individuals who are in step with our way of doing things and have those people working with us in some capacity. And that capacity, I'm pretty flexible about as well. It could be people within the organization or there can be people outside that are able to step in in some creative ways. So yeah, I think that's my easiest way to answer that. I love that. I think that's such a great piece. And I love that you are, you're creating a legacy with what you are doing. And even if I think of the name of, you know, that company, Edward and Son, you're also bringing through your father's legacy within mm. the food industry. And that's amazing. And I, I hope that everyone listening looks at that and hears that as that's a good way to build business. That's just good business versus I do think that, and there's different ways, there's different ways. So everyone do things your own way, but I think it is lovely to see the fact that I want this to continue to go and grow and stand for a purpose versus I want to have this for five years and flip it. Exactly. It's it's a different business model. Both can work to each his own, how you're going to run your business, how you're going to do your life, but it is refreshing to see um, the longevity, especially when you truly believe in the passion and the mission and the fact that, yeah, your product, it fuels your soul with what you're doing, but also a lot, a lot of consumers as well. And that's yeah. the reason to keep going with it. Thank you. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Um, where can people find you? I know they can find you all over, but but um, where are some places that people can find your products? Well, so yeah, Allison is, a, is the so, VP of sales, so she probably right, is better right, to talk right. about. Hi, hey, Whole Foods, natural food stores, Kroger's, Wegmans, Hannaford's, grocery stores, Amazon, Vitacost, online, retailers. Wonderful sprouts, other independents, yes. other co-ops. Sprouts, mothers, moms. I mean, there's no, I mean, we don't want to forget anyone. <laughs> but we can say wherever fine, wherever fine organic food is sold. I think yes. we can say that. Yes. Um, and uh, as I say, because we won't use the term natural in any meaning, you know, any meaningful way because people misunderstand it. I know I say natural food stores still, but that's what, that's what we've always called them. Yes. Right. But we're right. attempting right. to change our terminology to not mislead anyone yes. because our our idea of what natural is does not always match somebody else's idea of what natural is. So we don't want to confuse anyone. That's the beauty of organic because there is a certification that describes what it is. And our products are also available on Amazon and are available in, you know, other e-retailers like Thrive and so forth. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and also from our own website, people can buy things if they can't find anything else. And our, the intention of our website is really to, make all of the items available because others may be picking and choosing as to what they think is right. So people can find anything there. And then if you want to write to us, because we're a small business, uh, it's kind of pretty easy. I'm Joel at edwardandsons.com. Allison is Allison at edwardandsons.com. <laughs> so the key is because it's Edward and Sons, it's one Edward and plural sons. People often throw the S in in the wrong place and whatever. It happens. But the interesting thing, and without going too long, so what happened was I named the company Edward and Sons, right, when I started. And uh, when I went out on the road, when I, when I left the candy business, Edward was offended because he thought that what I was doing was saying that his candy was not good for people. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't saying that at all. I was saying... I'm grateful Choices. and we're, we're, we're in the business of providing people with options. So he wasn't happy. And after um, 
about, uh, I don't know, nine or 10 months of being out there developing a market, he, he uh, one of his friends bought a, a package of miso cup at a health food store. And he was, he realized at that point that it was a real thing and it was an actual real business. So he reached out and uh, he and my brothers became uh, supporters and shareholders and uh, sit on the board of directors and uh, Edward uh, uh, has, became what the name became was. exactly. Became what the we name threw the name out first, right. and then it, it kind of embodied afterwards. And Edward passed away last year. Oh, and at right. the time that he died, he was probably our strongest supporter. Uh, he was looking at the business results daily, really, and giving me feedback about it and that kind of thing. And I would seek his counsel right up until the end. So it was really, it's been a wonderful journey so far. And um, so, thank you for bringing Edward up in the conversation because he is a big part of our success. Well, thank you for sharing this. Thank both like Edward and you and Allison, all of you guys for bringing these great products to the market and for truly trailblazing this industry of organic foods and better for you foods for a lot of other food founders out there. So thank you so much. Keep doing what you're doing. Can't wait to continue to watch you guys rejuvenate and grow and change and keep what works the same. I have a feeling we'll stay in touch, Ainsley. I think so too. I think so too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. See you later. The Food Founders Podcast is brought to you by the Fab Growth Academy, the online hub for driven food and beverage business owners that want to get on more shelves, get into more homes and really grow their food business. Inside the Fab Growth Academy, FAB standing for food and beverage, you'll have unlimited access to tools, resources, and training from myself and my food friends. So if you know you have a great product, let's work on building the business side of things so that more people can enjoy it and you can make the impact I know you want to make with your business. The Fab Growth Academy is now open. So hop on over to growmyfoodbrand.com to join me and your fellow food founders inside the Fab Growth Academy. I cannot wait to see you in there and help you grow your business.